as we're going to talk about um, the founding of the churches in Corinth and in Ephesus, two of the most impactful churches in the early church movement. So if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, excuse me, Acts 18 is where we're going to begin this morning. I'm also very excited this week. Uh, any college football fans in here? Yeah. Begins this week. As you can tell, I'm supporting my LSU Tigers. Purple and gold lays this morning. Go Tigers. I had the hope that we're going to win the national championship this year until we start playing, and who knows what's going to happen after that. But at least I have a little more hope than A&M fans, right? That's right. I'm married to Aggie. <laughs> All right. What'd you say? Did somebody say something? What? Poor girl, please. She had the jackpots. And she is not here to say that she did. So, <laughs> All right. So Corinth and Ephesus, what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through some basic uh, historical information, um, kind of walking through Paul's missionary journeys this morning to Corinth, to Ephesus. So i got to give you some background on both churches. Um, Corinth obviously leads to the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, very important issues discussed there. I mean, Ephesus has a long heritage in the New Testament from obviously the, the writing in Acts, the book of Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and then of course in Revelation it's mentioned as well. Am I moving? Yeah, so today we're looking at two important cities, two important churches. And the, the importance of Corinth, we just did a couple of months ago a series on Wednesday nights through the, the book of First Corinthians. And what I love about First Corinthians is I really feel like the book of First Corinthians helps us understand the proper way that the church is supposed to interact with its culture. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in a little bit, but that's one of the main things that I see as a benefit of the, the writings to the Corinthian church in the New Testament. How is it that the church is supposed to interact with its culture? And then, of course, in Ephesus, Ephesus proved to be a centerpiece of early Christianity, hosting Paul, Timothy, and John as pastors. You talk about a who's who of New Testament guys, Ephesus had them, right? And if, listen, if Ephesus can walk through what it walked through, then certainly today we should be weary of the very things that the church in Ephesus is warned about in the New Testament. Because if, if Timothy and Paul and, and John can't lead the church through that, then who are we to think that we could be free from those very real temptations and that the church in Ephesus saw as well? The letter to the Ephesians reveals the impact of the gospel and the fullness of our lives. We'll walk through that in a little bit. The letters to Timothy help us organize the church today and walk in blamelessness as leadership. And then finally, John's letter to the church in Revelation reminds us to not forsake our first love. So let's look at the establishment of these two churches today. And we're going to begin in Acts 18 with the church in Corinth. All right. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, if you remember last time I taught a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Thessalonica and the idea that um, the reason why the, the Jews in Thessalonica were so concerned with Paul's teaching was because of this militant messianism that was present during this time that caused Claudius to kick the Jews out, all right? So as a result, Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth, Paul meets them, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, tent making, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So let's get a little background about Corinth, because I think it's helpful for us to understand all that is going on in Corinth, because um, of just some good contextual clues. So what I want to do just for a second is look at, at Mark's notes, pages 2 to 4, in which he outlines for us um, some historical background for Corinth. Let's see. There we go. All right. Um, I think I have... Can we throw the slide back up there just for a second? All right. I have a, a map... It's a little bit clearer than the one on your sheet right here. I've just, I think this is actually the third missionary journey, but second and third missionary journey for Paul are very similar. And you can see Corinth kind of over here in the Peloponnesus of Greece. Um, and it's, it's that little tiny segment right there that kind of connects the, the Greek island, or the, well, Peloponnesus, I guess is the right word. So right there, that little segment right there is where, um, where Corinth is, which is important because of all that it provides for the Roman Empire, okay? So let's head back over to the notes, and here's what Mark writes for us. We rejoin Luke's narrative as Paul leaves Athens, which is where he was forced to go after Thessalonica and then Berea, and walks to Corinth, a distance of about 50 miles. Our knowledge of Corinth at the time is fairly broad. A number of writers both before and after Paul, give us insight into the town that Gordon Fee calls the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world, right? That's a pretty incredible description. Uh, there's a guy named Craig Blomberg who wrote the NIV application commentary for 1 Corinthians, and here's how he describes the church in Corinth. Imagine a church racked by divisions, Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of discipling or disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to have behaved in such a way. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some, vis- some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant immorality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers as the Christian ideal. Still others debate uh, still other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreements about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion. As if all this were not enough, alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues occur regularly, but not always in constructive fashion. A significant number of these immature Christians do not even believe in the bodily, bodily resurrection of Christ. Does this sound like anything you've ever heard of? Probably no contemporary church faces... The exact cluster of issues all at once, but all of the issues remain remarkably current. 
The description, of course, is not of any contemporary church, but of the first century church in Corinth. Yet, if we can understand the nature of these problems and the nature of Paul's divinely inspired instruction in response to them, then we will gain great insights into numerous debates that threaten to divide today's church and keep it from having the world-transforming impact God intends to have. So that's about the church specifically at Corinth. Now let's go back to the overall discussion of Corinth as a city. One early writer with a wealth of insight into Corinth was the Greek traveler and writer Pisanius. Book 2 of Pisanius' description of Greece centers on Corinth. Pisanius gives a bit of history explaining that the ancient city of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar. When Caesar rebuilt Corinth, he populated it with Roman colonists. Paul would have come into the picture roughly a hundred years later, and by that time, Corinth was already a prosperous and wealthy city. And again, from what you saw earlier, this little inlet right there, it's hard for you to see with my little blue pen on the screen, but that inlet right there is where Corinth is situated. The city's wealth came from several places. First, Corinth held a unique place for trade and travel, because you could come from the Italy side of the Mediterranean, and then go across Corinth to the other side, to the more Turkish side. Corinth was positioned with two harbors, one that faced Italy to the west and another facing Turkey to the east. The safest way to transit from Italy to Troas, Ephesus, or other key cities in the Mediterranean, in the eastern Mediterranean, was to sail into the western harbor of Corinth. At that point, the Corinthians had a kind of ancient railroad track made of logs that allowed the boats to be pulled across land the four and one-half miles to the eastern harbor. And that has to be the worst job in the ancient world, right? We're going to pull this boat across land from one side of Corinth to the other. The logs were set out where a boat could be pulled onto the logs that would then roll under the boat. After the boat rolled off a set of logs, those logs would be carried to the front of the line to be used again in the movement of the boat. The sailing around the bottom of Greece was notoriously treacherous. Needless to say, this trafficking through Corinth brought a great deal of money into the city. A second source of money came from a derivative source. This is our scandalous portion of the lesson today. Boat captains came into port with money to burn, and to that time it would take, and to that the time it would take for their boats to be ported, or portaged, portaged, portaged. That's a really great word, Mark. Four and one half miles, and there was time for certain excursions by the captains. Strabo wrote that Corinth is called wealthy because of its commerce, since it is situated in the isthmus and is master of two harbors. Strabo later adds that Corinth had a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, lust, and beauty. This temple had many slaves and courtesans available for a price, temple prostitutes. Strabo wrote, the ship captains freely squandered their money, which gave birth to a first century proverb, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. In light of these facts, we will not be shocked when we read later of the struggles Paul had trying to address the sexual problems of the Corinthians. A third source of money for Corinth came from the Isthmian Games. These were Olympic... Am I up? Sorry, there we go. Thank you. These were Olympic-type games that occurred in Corinth every second year. The games drew, the games drew great crowds of people and their money as well. They also were... Uh, there are also a reason Paul would speak to the Corinthians with sports analogies as, as outlined there for you in 1 Corinthians 9. Because they were analogies that the Corinthians understood... 
We don't know the, the exact size of Corinth. Paul visited, but scholars estimate around 145,000 into the city um, in, in the, that were in the city when Paul came there as a missionary. All right, so there's a brief overview of the city of Corinth and why it became such a centerpiece of the early church. It was a central um, city for the Roman Empire and became that for the early church. So when Paul gets there and he starts proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the synagogues, there's a lot of things there that help the gospel kind of move quickly through the ancient world as a result of being proclaimed in Corinth. Let's go to verse 5 here in chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out its garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, if you've been walking through Acts with us, you know that what happens here is very different from what Paul has experienced to this point. As you remember in Thessalonians, the man was run out of the city by the Jewish leadership in Thessalonica. And then when he went to Berea and started preaching the exact same message, the Jewish leadership in Thessalonica heard about it and said, hey, you have not gone far enough. They go to Berea, kick him out of Berea so that he has to go to Athens by himself. And then all of a sudden he comes to Corinth. He's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It seems like the same thing is about to happen as this Jewish leadership is going to kick him out of the city. And yet the Lord comes to him as a vision and says, listen, all that stuff that happened to you is not going to happen to you here. I am protecting you because I want you to plant firmly a church here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Lord protects him. And as a result, the gospel has a, an avenue to be taken to the entirety of the Roman Empire at that time. Now, I want to take just a moment and jump to the end of this lesson in which uh, Mark deals specifically with some issues in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes some very interesting things here about the way in which he approached the church in Corinth. So let's look at, um, let's begin in verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll go to the end of this section. And here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a very interesting thing for me, specifically as a preacher. And I just want to deal with this a little bit. I think it's important for us to recognize what Paul is doing here. So, Paul comes to Corinth and he says that he did not use words of eloquence to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. Now, why is Paul making such a a big deal about the way that he presented the gospel to the Corinthian people? I want to give you a little more background into Corinth to understand why. Let's see. This is from a paper I wrote earlier this year for school. Okay, so eloquence in the Bible, is it in conflict with what Paul writes here? I'll talk about eloquence in the Old Testament, but we'll skip there. Paul describes the preaching event in 1 Corinthians as folly, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Further, he says later in this chapter that God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. Paul then commits in his preaching to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He comes to Corinthians not with lofty speech or wisdom, but rather with the simple message of the cross. He contends that his speech and message were given not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your, that your, the, the Corinthians' faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He continues this line of thinking in the second epistle to the Corinthian church responding to complaints that his public persona and preaching fell very short in comparison to other orators of this time, and even in comparison to his own letters. Paul defends his ministry against these complaints in chapter 10, writing that he will not boast in his own abilities as an orator, but rather only in the cross of Christ. He has no need to defend himself against accusations of faulty oratory skills, because ultimately he is not seeking to elevate himself. Paul is solely concerned with exalting Christ alone, and he will not join in a debate over his inadequacy as a skilled orator. He chooses to employ a low eloquence in which the adornments of language are forsaken for a greater purpose. Is Paul's writing, then, an admonishment against all other forms of eloquence generally, signifying a change in the way that he desired to preach the gospel, or from which he would later... To later change. The answer to this question, like the, that of the prophets above, is found in the specific Corinthian context which we're dealing with right now. In the middle years of the, uh, 50 AD, Corinth was a town obsessed with sophistry, okay? So just kind of people walking around saying wise things. Or the formation of wise sayings for entertainment. Sophists would eloquently present speeches that valued form over substance. Uh, kind of like what you see happening in politics, right? Beauty was prioritized over content. In fact, at the Isthmian Games we just talked about, sophists would compete with great showmanship to win the honor of best rhetorician. The Corinthians then placed a high value culturally on one's ability to speak publicly and maintain their attention. Whichever speaker would entertain the most won the affection of the people. This cultural value made its way into the church in Corinth and was what was causing the divisions among the people. So, what you see here is you see the 
culture of Corinth, which is very important for us to understand and why we take so much time kind of developing the context of Corinth historically, infiltrating the church. The specific thing we see in the early kind of uh, days of the church in Corinth, that time had a great kind of um, focus on sophists, wise-sayers coming around, and the more eloquent they could speak, the, the richer they became, the more valued they were. They were elevated to positions of worship in some ways. And here comes Paul. Paul studies the culture. Paul learns the culture. And he knows that he could probably develop a following by just the way that he was speaking. He could come up with words of wisdom. He could come up with um, just kind of catchphrases. He could develop a following. But what he says here is that, listen, I don't want to just become another sophist. I don't want to become just another wise sayer that comes into Corinth, takes a, a, a little group of people, builds them up for a period of time, and when the next guy comes in, loses them to that new wave of teaching. So, so I'm going to intentionally not become that so that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be displayed, not as an an evidence of my ability as an order, but as an evidence of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he rejects that kind of cultural thing on purpose. Well, what happens is that you get guys like Apollos coming up and stepping up. You get guys like Peter stepping up who are really good orators. They, they start proclaiming the truth of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And people say, you know what? That guy's a really good speaker. I like him better than I like Paul. And so I'm going to start following after Paul, after Peter, I'm going to start following after Apollos, and they're going to be my primary teacher. And then they start saying things like, you know what, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Peter follower. I'm an Apollos, I'm an Apollosian, or whatever you want to call it, right? I'm a guy who follows after Apollos. And instead of identifying as a church corporately under the headship of Jesus Christ, they begin to identify on specific teachers who can tickle their ear or turn a phrase. And as a result, the church begins to divide. And Paul says, guys, you missed the whole point. I did that on purpose so that you wouldn't become attached to me more than you become attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Apollos and Peter, whom I know, would also want you to be attached to Jesus Christ more than you are attached to me. Why? Because Peter, Apollos, Paul, they didn't die for you. The message they proclaim is not a message that they instituted because they didn't come from heaven as the incarnate Son of God, live a perfect, sinless life, and then become your substitutionary atonement upon the cross. So they have no business taking worship or allegiance from you, and all of that is due to Jesus Christ. And so he tacks it head on. He says, you're allowing the culture around you to influence the way that you are affecting or uh, interacting with each other as a church. And it should stop. I'm saying to you, I don't want followers of me. I want followers of Jesus. You follow me as I follow Christ. And Apollos and Peter are saying the exact same thing. And what a important reminder for us as the church today, right? Talk about culture influencing the church, I tell you what, we've got a celebrity persona thing happening in the church today. We've got people who identify more with specific pastors, specific movements, specific teachers, more than they do Jesus Christ. And so you start having factions, even within churches like Champion Force, specific, 
as a hypothetical, right? <laughs> I'm not saying this is happening here, but it could, right? So we got to be aware. Or we start saying things like, you know what? I just really like hearing Stephen Trammell preach more than I like hearing David Fleming preach. Or, you know what, I really like hearing Mark Lanier preach more than I do or teach more than I, I do David Fleming preaching. Or I really like that Jared Richard guy. Or I like that Avery Lamel guy more than I do these other guys. And if we're not careful, we begin to segment ourselves within the church based on a personality. And I promise you, none of us who teach want you to identify with us more than we do Jesus. Why? Because... If you start identifying with an individual more than Jesus, we start dividing. And when we have division, that is of the enemy, not of the Lord. We want unity under the headship of Jesus Christ. Because David Fleming, Stephen Trammell, Mark Lanier, Avery Lumel, Jesus, Jared Richard did not die for your sins. None of us did. The words that we proclaim are inspired by the word of God. This is where we find our unity. This is where we find our centrality. This is where we come together as a body. Not on individual personalities or words, but on the word of God. All right? So, that's just one example. And what you can see through the book of Corinthians, and I think we'll probably walk through that over the next couple of weeks, is that there are tons of things just like this as Paul is having to deal with. As you heard a minute ago in in Mark's lesson, the, the sexual promiscuity within Corinth was ridiculous. When you have a temple of Aphrodite, I think it probably could lend itself to that, right? So that you have guys who used to worship Aphrodite by going to seek out temple prostitutes, kind of doing the exact same thing to worship the Lord. And Paul's like, hey, listen, I know that's the way you were for a period of time. That is no longer the case. That is not what honors the Lord. So you see Paul having to to address these very specific contextual things in Corinth to allow the church to become unified, number one, but also remain in purity. Okay, we got to move on. All right, so we've moved on past Corinth to Ephesus. And actually, guys, this section of of, of Acts is some of my favorite writings in all of Scripture because I think it's so funny what you see happening in the early church. All right, so... Acts 18.24 to 19.10 That's where we see Luke outlining Paul's adventures in Ephesus. And what's really funny about what Paul does here in Ephesus is that the, the momentum that we see happening in Corinth kind of takes on new legs in Ephesus to the point where some really incredible things are happening. All right? So, in Acts 19, chapter 1, verse 1, We see Paul transition here, right? So it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples there who had heard a partial gospel, not a full gospel. And as a result, uh, Paul kind of told them about the Holy Spirit coming and how the Holy Spirit of God could dwell in them um, through the work of Jesus Christ. And they become full-fledged followers of Jesus. So there's 12 men in all that he did that with. He entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of tyranny. So we see that, that same pattern again. Paul, as is his custom, goes to the synagogue first, 
right? And then when the Jewish people reject him, he goes to the Gentiles. And what we see here is that Luke is establishing the basis for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, right? He goes to the Jews first, but we see the the Lord opening the doors for him specifically to the Gentiles. And that'll become a very big deal as as, uh, Paul's ministry continues in the book of Acts. He continued this in Ephesus for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's what starts happening. The word of the Lord is proclaimed, all of Asia hears, and then some really crazy stuff starts happening, okay? So uh, Paul's handkerchief, his apron become instruments of healing, right? People come up to me and say, hey, listen, Paul, my, my brother is sick. He's dying. I need you to come to me. And Paul's like, listen, I can't. He goes, okay, well, let me get your handkerchief, right? So they take his handkerchief, they go lay it on people, and people are healed, it's pretty incredible. And the people of Ephesus begin to perk up. You can see in, in Mark's lesson for this week that Ephesus was kind of a, a magical place. People were always looking for kind of magical powers. And so when there's these specific um, itinerant Jewish exorcists, right? That's a great business card for you, right? Jared Richard, itinerant Jewish exorcist, okay? So they're called the sons of Sceva in the scripture. There's the itinerant Jewish exorcists are always looking for new power to be able to tap into because people would pay them to come uh, use their power in various ways. And so they see, they see Paul and these other people start casting out demons in the name of Jesus, start healing people in the name of Jesus. And they say, hey, listen, we got to get in on that action. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start healing people in the name of Jesus. I'm going to start casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so these sons of Sceva go up to this demon-possessed person and they say, in the name of Jesus, you come out. And here's what happens. The demon looks back at them and says, who are you? And they say, well, it's not really about who we are. It's about the name of Jesus, That's important here. We want to cast you out in the name of Jesus. And the demon goes, I know about Jesus. I've heard about Jesus, but I do not know you. And so he ends up through this guy beating up these itinerant Jewish exorcists so that they leave bloody and naked. All right. I heard Matt Chandler speaking about this one time and he said, you know what? I don't know much about fighting. and I can relate with that because I have the body of a reader, right? You can see my great muscles. So, here's what he said. I don't know much about fighting, but when you leave a fight bloody and naked, things didn't go so hot for you, all right? So they wanted the power of Jesus, but they couldn't use the power of Jesus because they didn't use it in the right way. And so it's just an incredible thing that we see going on in Ephesus, that the Lord is doing incredible, incredible things, and he's establishing a church that will have profound effects on the New Testament, all right? So, Let's talk about some implications about what happens here as a church in Ephesus is established. Basically, we see the church in Ephesus seeing that the gospel changes everything. That the good news of Jesus Christ is changing everything. And Paul follow-ups on this in his letter to the church in Ephesus, if you want to turn there really quickly. The book of Ephesians. And here's what he does. In chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, 
Paul outlines that every spiritual blessing we have is in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. And he just goes through this in chapter 1. All of these incredible things that come to us as a result of Jesus Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And chapter 2, he talks about how um, all of this uh, ethnic diversity, ethnic um, strife, all of these divisions that exist among people crumble under the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are all unified in our need for a Savior and unified in the Holy Spirit of God that takes up residence in us and how that should transform the way that we function as a body of believers in the church. We recognize that we have an obligation to proclaim the excellencies of God, the manifold wisdom of God, Paul writes in Ephesians 3, to even the heavenly places. And so we can't get caught up in strife or divisions as they were in Corinth. We have to be unified under the the headship of Jesus Christ to accomplish the great purpose of the gospel. And then he talks about how that affects our marriages, chapter 5. talks about how it affects our are the way we parents, chapter 6, the way that we experience work environments, the gospel truly impacts everything. Well, how so? Okay, well, let's, let's think about this for a second. You want to have a good marriage, all right? Well, what are some key essentials to having a good marriage? Well, number one, you've got to remember that both of you are imperfect people, right? Both of you are sinners. Both of you are in need of a Savior. Number two, You look at Jesus, who you offended and yet gave you incredible grace and forgiveness. You look at your kids, who are in need of incredible grace and forgiveness, right, occasionally. And you start thinking, God, my Father, showed me incredible grace and forgiveness. And so you start thinking about all of the impulses, the, uh, the, the precepts of the gospel, and you start thinking about how every single piece of the gospel is important to every relationship in my life. If I want to have a good marriage, I have to recognize that I'm imperfect, and I probably had an, uh, a part in the, the conflict that's happening in my marriage right now, right? It's easy to blame the other person, but I have to remember that I'm imperfect. I need to be forgiven. I need grace. I need to show the same kind of grace and forgiveness that I experienced through Jesus to my spouse. When I'm parenting, I don't look at them and I condemn them. I think about them in the same way that God, the Father, thought about me, who when I offended him in ways greater than my kids could ever offend me, looked upon me, not with wrath and condemnation, but incredible grace and mercy as he sent his only begotten son to come after me, to pursue me, to rescue me from the clutches of sin, so that I could then be in right relationship with him. He sacrificed to show great mercy and grace. Now, of course, there's some disciplining aspects that we have to employ occasionally, and the Lord disciplines us as his children, but he does it out of love. And he does it to display the fullness of his glorious character to his people. And that's what Ephesians is all about. That's the legacy of what we see happening early in Acts that's outlined in the book of Ephesians, that this, this teaching of Jesus that is that is full of divine power, can heal, it can cast out demons, 
But even in greater ways than that, it can affect and impact every single aspect of our lives. There's a saving component, yes, in which we are rescued from our sin and we are justified and sanctified before the Lord spiritually. But then we see the impact of that spiritual saving affecting all of the physical elements of our lives. And Paul gets that to the church, to us today, because of what happened in Ephesus. And then later on, another impact of Ephesians, we see in John's letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, when he says, listen, I'm so impressed with how you guys are protecting doctrine. I'm so impressed by what you guys are doing to protect the, the purity of the teaching in the church, but do not forget your first love. Go back to the things that you used to do the way that you love the Lord and you trusted in the gospel. Go back to those things. All of those things we have today as a church because of what happened in Ephesus. So, let's talk about some ways to respond today. As we look at the formation of Corinth and the formation of Ephesus. Number one, be careful about interacting with culture. Learn how to influence instead of being influenced. I think this is a, one of the most profound things that we need to talk about today as the church. Culture is not inherently bad, right? I mean, we are right now using the benefits of culture. We have language. We have technology. Earlier, we played instruments, right, that our culture helped to formulate so that we can access the Lord. But we have to be very careful that, as Dr. Trammell says, we are not thermostats but are thermometers, is that right? No, that we are thermo- yeah, we are thermostats, not thermometers. There you go, right? And here's what we mean by that. We need, to, but we need to be the ones establishing what in culture is useful and what must be rejected. We are the ones that have to influence the way that we use what God has given us in order to bring about the fullness of his kingdom. And the problem is, a lot of times we end up just like Corinth. And instead of influencing the culture around us, we allow the culture to come and influence us. You see this a lot with kids, right? I mean, we're always, we're always trying to to wrestle with our children regarding how much they allow the culture around them to influence their decisions and their behaviors. If we allow them to watch certain television shows, for instance, they'll begin to think that certain practices are okay and honor the Lord. So that culture begins affecting the way that they view the world around them. And my challenge for us today is to begin thinking about how we can take the very mediums that culture, that the bad part of culture is using to influence the church and start thinking about how we can start implementing these very same things to start influencing the culture around us. We have to be careful as a church to not let the culture influence us, but for us to use the elements of the culture to influence the culture for the greater glory of God. All right? So start thinking through that. How are you interacting with the culture? I was thinking uh, as I was kind of getting ready to come teach with you guys today about my experience in Brazil um, early last year. We were going down there to help um, kind of organize some mission trips that we're going to be taking here as a church to Brazil. And we got down there and we were talking to the missionaries about the type of Christianity that Brazil experiences, okay? So um, if you know anything about the history of Brazil, you know that the Portuguese came there and they colonized Brazil. When they did, they forced everyone to become Catholic, okay? And so here's what the Portuguese did. 
instead of uh, the, the Brazilians did, instead of um, becoming Catholic in the sense that they accepted all the precepts of Catholicism and converted, what they did was they took the terminology of Catholicism and just threw it on their existing religions. Okay? So when you talk to certain pockets of Christians in Brazil, what you have to recognize is that their version of Christianity in Brazil is very different than what we think about when we say Christianity. Let me give you, for instance, we go on this park in Porto Alegre, and there are these rocks. And in front of these rocks, there are offerings. And the missionary told us that these people come into this park specifically, and they begin praying to different um, spirits, dark spirits, light spirits, to accomplish certain things for them. And so there was this, this one thing, there's a, a plate full of baby stuff. And we said, what's going on here? And they said, well, they are praying to a negative spirit to do something bad to a baby or to a family with a baby. Okay? So they offered this stuff to a spirit to do this. Now, if you turn in the same park, you look and you said that on another rock, there is a picture of St. Peter. And they are offering the same things to St. Peter or positive things that they are offering to these negative spirits to accomplish. Right? That's a contextualized version of Christianity that is dangerous, right? Because they've allowed the culture to influence the teachings of Jesus. Now, here's the thing for us that we have to recognize. We do the same thing. Maybe not to that extreme in the sense that we allow demonic spirits to come and be a part of our worship. Hopefully not. But we have to recognize that there are certain Western things that we have allowed to infiltrate our church that we have to be guarded against so that they don't pervert the message of Jesus. Okay? Secondly, ask yourself, has the gospel changed everything about me? As we look at the impact of the church in Ephesus and the teaching in Ephesians, has the gospel truly impacted the fullness of your life? Do the teachings of the gospel impact the way that you treat your spouse? Do the teachings of the, of the gospel impact the way that you treat your children? Are you forgiving and gracious and merciful in the same way that God has been forgiving and gracious and merciful to you? And if not, I would encourage you to begin working on that. I promise you guys, you start implementing that kind of stuff in your marriage and your homes, the culture of your house will change. And finally... Pray for the message of God to spread as it did in this time through the power of God. One of the benefits of me being able to do some doctoral work um, right now is that I'm studying a lot about the way that Christianity is changing around the world. Do you guys recognize that we are no longer the majority Christian-wise in the world today? The majority of Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere and in Asia. Isn't that crazy? We think those are places that still need to be reached for the gospel. I'm telling you, England, which was the centerpiece of Christianity for a long time, Germany, which so much of our theology is written in, and increasingly so America, are the places that these places are sending missionaries to. The gospel is spreading around the world in incredible, incredible ways, and we want it to continue in that way, right? We want to continue to grow in Kenya. We want to continue to grow in Brazil. We want to continue to grow in Korea and China. The church in China is exploding. I mean, you could go look at the church in in China right now, and it would read like something in Acts. 
It's so incredible. Even as persecution is coming down on Christians in Iraq, Iran, Turkey, the church is still being built because the the power of the gospel is so present and so needed in the lives of these people. We should be praying that the things that we read about in Acts continue through our efforts today because we still serve the same God and we still have the same Holy Spirit of God living in us, right? So are we praying for that? Do we have a global mindset of what God is doing? Could it be said of us and our church that the entirety of Asia heard about the gospel because of our efforts? Paul started with 12 men in Ephesus, right? And look what happened. So I hope you're encouraged by when you read things like that happen in Acts with Corinth and with Ephesus. Listen, there's no... There's nothing new under the sun that's affecting our church, right? The things that we read about happening in Corinth can affect us today. We've got to be on guard. But number two, we also cannot forsake the power of the Holy Spirit that we see displayed in the book of, and, the, and the, the church in Ephesus um, because it, it's still present in us today. And the same things that happened back then can happen through us if we yield to the ministry of the Holy Spirit as they did in the book of Acts. Let me pray for you guys and we'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that you would take the words that were mentioned today, God, from your, from, your, from, your, from your Bible, from your scripture, and then even from me, God, and you would call us to greater understanding of what it means to be the church. God, thank you for what you did in Corinth. Thank you for what you did in Ephesus. Thank you for the legacy that we see on display as a result of what happened in Corinth and Ephesus. Thank you that in Corinthians, God, we get a picture of the way that we are called as a church to interact with our culture, not allowing it to influence us, but Um, calling us to influence it. Thank you for the power of the gospel we see displayed in Ephesus, God, a power that people were trying to mimic because it was so clear what your gospel was accomplishing. God, may we seek to display that same kind of power today because we serve the same God and have the same Holy Spirit in us. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys, you're dismissed.